Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil exporter, announced that it's going for net zero carbon emissions by 2060. A day later, Bahrain followed suit. The UAE has already committed to doing so by 2050. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And with half the GCC countries now publicly committed to a massive cut in carbon emissions, we're looking at how the Gulf is getting serious about climate change. Before we start, please subscribe to Beyond the Headlines in your favourite podcasting app to get all of the latest episodes. On October 23, 2021, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman pledged that Saudi Arabia would be net zero by 2060. And he pledged 186 billion US dollars to make that happen. In doing so, he's joined a list of over 100 countries who have so far made the promise that experts say is vital for all countries if humanity is to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Only two countries, the tiny Bhutan and Suriname in South America, have so far managed to do this, and both are actually carbon negative. For large economies, this will prove much more challenging. So what does this mean? Why is it important? And what's at stake? Here's Daniel Bardsley, the National Science Reporter, to cover the basics. First, what is climate change? It's essentially human activity leading to the release of carbon-based substances into the atmosphere and the effect that has on temperature. So essentially it means that sunlight can penetrate into the atmosphere and heat, um, but it finds it more difficult to leave the atmosphere and as a result that leads to an overall increase in temperatures. So climate change is, in effect, the sustained increase in global average temperatures. But as a result, it's an increase in extreme weather. As climate change gets worse, we'll see more floods and hurricanes, more droughts, more heat waves, more cold snaps. Things become less predictable and more dangerous. Populations moving. You'll see sea level rises, which will mean that even some islands are forecast to become even completely uninhabitable as a result of climate change. There'll be effects on biodiversity and ecosystems, and already you're seeing that with changes in, say, migration patterns of birds and animals. And then you'll see effects on ocean temperatures, which are already being experienced in the Gulf, increase in average temperatures leading to more frequent coral bleaching events. So there's all these very complex effects in multiple areas. So the I suppose the ultimate concern is that large areas of the world could become uninhabitable and you'll get conflict as a result of climate change. So that it's very complex and, and sort of serious consequences that people are forecasting. Once a theory, it's now considered a fact by almost every single scientist who studies this. Human activity since industrialization is causing climate change. By burning coal, petrol, gas and other fossil fuels for heat and for power, we are releasing tons of carbon into the air. Industrial farming, mechanization, cars, factories all release a cocktail of gases like carbon dioxide, methane, sulfur, and these are making our planet 
warmer. We once talked about global warming, though, and you hear that less and less as you hear the word climate change more often. I think the term climate change reflects the fact that you're seeing a much wider range of changes to global climate and not just to temperature, but also to precipitation and that sort of thing. So what can or is being done? Well, for a start, I'm sure many of us have been encouraged to make changes in our own lives. Can we insulate our homes better, cut out short car journeys, reduce, reuse and recycle more? But Daniel points out that while this is one aspect, Really, it's going to take government action to stop climate change. So I think the effect that consumers have is important, but it's only a small part of the picture. And ultimately, it requires governments to take action you know, in a very multilateral way and to set out detailed pathways as to how their countries can reduce their carbon emissions. So that brings us to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain's recent pledges of carbon net zero, or the UAE's before that. What does this mean? Well, if a country is carbon neutral, then it means that it's not leading to an overall increase in the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So whilst it may continue with certain activities, certain, say, burning of fossil fuels that do release carbon emissions, it will mitigate them in other areas. And reaching carbon neutrality is seen as being key to the Paris, the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement's goal of of limiting overall temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. The Paris Climate Agreement? Well, that's an important one. In 2015, world leaders got together in the French capital and they finalised an agreement to take significant action to try and halt global average temperature rises to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. That might not seem like a lot, but even at that, the world's most optimistic option will be seeing some pretty major impacts on the weather. I want to take a second here to explain two similarly seeming terms, carbon neutral and carbon net zero. As Daniel said, carbon neutral is not adding to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, whilst also offsetting. Aiming for net zero, however, takes it an important step further cutting emissions to their lowest level and offsetting what little can't be cut entirely. Both are hard, but the latter is much more ambitious and, as Daniel says, more vital. I think to achieve, say, the the 1.5 degree or to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial times, that would require a a 45% reduction in anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 and then reaching net zero by 2050. So yes, as you say, there'll be um, any um, carbon emissions that continue to be um, released will be offset by other methods. And a lot of the approach to achieving net zero is about um, not just limiting carbon dioxide emissions or, or and other carbon emissions, but also based on new technology and carbon capture and, and other technologies that can limit carbon emissions. So carbon net zero means you start by not adding to the problem and then reducing or offsetting what you can't cut entirely. That means renewable energy, like solar and wind, rather than oil or coal power stations. It means electric cars, not petrol. It means less meat. It means finding ways to fly less or fly more greenly. Making factories and offices more sustainable. And it means offsetting what we can't cut out. Planting forests 
can be a relatively simple way of offsetting some carbon, but it's just not going to be sufficient in the long run. And that brings us to new technologies, like carbon capture. This means literally sucking up the carbon that's already in the air and locking it up. While a tree might absorb carbon, its life cycle might be a few decades or a few hundred years, and then it dies and releases that carbon back into the air as it rots. If we're trying to offset carbon that we've been releasing for, say, the last 200 years, that was locked up in coal and oil for millennia, we need longer-term solutions. Experts and politicians hope that carbon capture will offer this, but we're yet to get anything that's remotely viable, despite some promising small-scale studies where carbon has been pumped underground or transformed into crystalline rock or in other ways trapped. So, coming back to the Gulf, what is the significance of Saudi Arabia's announcement? Mina Al-Arabi is the national's editor-in-chief. She was in Riyadh for the announcement during the Saudi Green Initiative Summit. Saudi Arabia's announcement is quite significant. They pledged to get to net zero by 2060. The announcement was made by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and it's a statement of intent. And of course, when you make these announcements that are long-term, it means that industries and investments start to turn in that direction. Uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, who's Minister of State for Energy Affairs and basically oversees energy affairs, was there, as was the head of Aramco, I mean, Nasser. And so when you have all the pillars of the state saying we're on one page and we're working towards net zero, it's an important and significant announcement. Prince Abdulaziz said there are three pillars that they want to look into and that the world should think about when we're thinking about this energy transition. One is energy security. So you still need to make sure that we have electricity, that we have energy for economic growth and all all the things that we need energy for. So he says energy security is one. Two is economic prosperity. So you can't think about climate action without thinking about how does the knock-on effect on the economy, positive or negative. And then three, of course, is climate action. And so they're thinking about it holistically and they're thinking, how can you maintain economic prosperity and development and secure energy supply while committing to climate action? One of the obvious questions that many of us had when we heard the news that Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil exporter, was doing this was how. Wouldn't it kill a business that earns the country billions of dollars every month? For the world's ninth largest carbon dioxide emitter and second largest in the Middle East after Iran, that is a major step that puts it in the same league as many developed economies and major energy consumers when it comes to fighting climate change. That's Carol Nackley, CEO of Crystal Energy and an associate lecturer at the University of Surrey. I would say that first and foremost, it's a rebranding from just being an oil producer or being looked at as a bad guy who is polluting the environment and damaging the climate to a nation that takes climate change seriously. So they recognize the problem and they want to commit to be part of the solution. One really concrete thing that Carol sees is trends in energy intensity. That's the energy inefficiency of an economy. While companies around the world might have been striving to make production more energy efficient for years, to cut costs as much as to save the planet, that hasn't necessarily been the case in the Middle East, where things like subsidised power in the major oil states have allowed companies not to worry so much. 
industries like the oil sector can be incredibly energy intensive. And according to Carol, that's a great place to start if you're looking to cut emissions. The Middle East and Saudi Arabia really stand out because if you look at energy intensity trends almost everywhere in the world, excluding the Middle East, you can see that they have been declining, except in the Middle East, which has been an outlier, and energy intensity has been increasing, not decreasing. So there's a lot that uh, governments in the region, in the Middle East, can do to improve energy efficiency. And that, in my opinion, is a very low-hanging fruit towards achieving the net zero target by 2060. So Saudi Arabia and the region can look at ways to make industry, and in particular the oil industry, cleaner and more efficient. From her conversations in Saudi Arabia and hearing the pledge from the kingdom, Mina Al-Arabi says that she believes the Saudi government is really serious about making changes, pragmatic about what that means, and also deeply concerned about some of the changes that they are already seeing in the Middle East. Before you'd find conversations about climate action, there was not skepticism as much, but it was more a thing of, well, economic diversification is going to take time. There is a reliance on hydrocarbons. We can't change that. Whereas now it really has shifted to, okay, what are the economic opportunities in this energy transition? So there's more optimism than I've ever felt before, in addition to a real sense of, okay, the crisis is here. So there's no skepticism, but also no sense of this is not really our problem. There really is ownership of the problem and it's not idealism, but there is a sense of, okay, we can actually do something about this and the technologies are there, you know, be it through hydrogen, be it through solar power. One of the conversations you kept hearing people talk about is the fear of water shortages for Saudi Arabia and the rest of the region. We're seeing that already, be it in Iraq, in Syria, of course, in Yemen, in Jordan. Our region is one of the worst when it comes to water resources. So there's a real sense that there has to be action and that it's beginning to impact the region now. It's not a future problem that we need to talk about, which is one of the changes you really feel. Previously, up until even Two, three years ago, people talk about climate change and and global warming and water stretched resources as though it's a problem that's going to come in the future. And now very much the language, the thinking is that this is now, this, this problem is here and we've got to solve it now. Saudi Arabia already sees the issues. And whilst it may be a major oil producer, it's also at the sharp end of climate change. And it feels that very acutely. Much of the kingdom is dry and hot. It takes huge amounts of energy to keep areas cool in the sweltering summers. Temperature rises will only make that harder. More and more severe droughts are a major worry for a desert country. But Mina says Saudi Arabia sees all of this and is also making a case that there is a future for oil. So there is a sense of this doesn't mean that we're going to stop pumping oil or doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in oil. It means that this has to be two tracks We need to invest in getting hydrocarbon extraction to be as clean as possible. At the same time, we need to be investing in renewables and hydrogen and others, reduction of methane um, and gas emissions. So what it means for Saudi Arabia is that it's shown that it's on the path of this energy transition that the the mark is for 2060, but they've made very clear that doesn't mean they're not going to take any action now and that there are certain markers that will be put in every year to see how they're moving towards that transition. But also 
is important that they're part of the conversation. I think for a lot of the oil producers, there was a hesitancy to be part of the discussion because quite often, of course, oil is almost put in the docket. And it's frustrating because a lot of the people that complain about oil and complain about hydrocarbons are people who benefit from these energy sources that really do keep the world economy going. So I think now there's more emboldened voices, let's say, from Saudi Arabia that say, yeah, this is an issue, but at the same time, the world does need oil and we're not going to stop doing that and we're not going to stop investing in it. And that's become a real touch point because, of course, you have certain sides who are saying there should be no more investment and hydrocarbons and everything should go to renewables. And that's not feasible because, again, the world still relies on this energy source. And so that's one critical element here is to say that for Saudi Arabia, as the world's largest oil producer and plays an instrumental role in OPEC, they will continue to do that. They realize the importance of the role they play, but they also realize the importance of the signal they've now given and the commitment they've now given to help with that transition, uh, both financially but also politically. Carol says that Saudi Arabia wants to make the case there is still a need for oil today and a future for oil tomorrow, even if reliance is drastically cut and offset by other means. Now, sadly, the climate change debate has become very polarized. You have on one extreme those who want to put an end to the fossil fuel era. And on the other extreme, you have the climate deniers that want to continue producing and consuming uh, oil and gas and coal, of course, as if there is um, no tomorrow. And I think what the Gulf is trying to, to do here is to bring some degree of realism to uh, the debate about climate change and the energy transition, showing that the energy transition is more about complementarity than substitution. And that by itself is a clever step because it extends the shelf life of the most valuable assets in the region, and that are oil and gas. Mina also points out the impact that announcements like this by Saudi Arabia, Bahrain or the UAE before them can have across the Middle East. Saudi Arabia has already committed millions to projects in the region to help build renewables, conserve habitats, plant trees and support a green transition. So too has the UAE. First of all, when the UAE and Saudi Arabia are making their announcements, they're immediately saying, we need to bring on the rest of the region. So they're offering help. They're offering help with technology. You just recently had a couple of agreements, for example, signed between Mazdar and Iraq to help with solar power. And you also have different Saudi companies looking at deals with Iraq to look at renewables. So that's really important. And Iraq is one example, and there are others. So it's important that they bring other countries in the region on board. Also, is part of this thinking is that energy could be a source of cooperation and even peacemaking when there are so many other points of contention. So it could actually be a really good rallying point. And so for the region, they will look for leadership and, and, you know, Saudi Arabia can play an important role in that. But there's also the need to find those common points of interest that can help ease tensions rather than those points that can actually lead to the flaring up of tensions. So how exactly are Saudi Arabia and the UAE planning to invest in the region as well as in their own countries? 
they want to say that there are opportunities for the entire region, economic opportunities. And the UAE has made a similar, let's say, pledge to make sure that climate action and energy transition is not only limited to it, to the UAE. So Saudi Arabia hosted this meeting in Riyadh, which is the Middle East Green Initiative, and they said they will invest 39 billion rials, which is basically $10 billion, to reduce carbon emissions in the region and protect the environment. So that's quite interesting because with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said that his country would contribute 15% of the funds, and then they're working with others and development funds on funding this and starting up initiatives. Now, the UAE hosted a regional conference to get the conversation started as far back as April. And for that event, you also had John Kerry, uh, the U.S. climate envoy there. You had Alok Sharma, who's president of COP26 there. And so you're seeing that while it is a Middle East initiative, be it the Saudi one or previous the UAE bringing people together, it's also a global one. Thanks this week to Mina Al-Arabi, Daniel Bardsley and Carol Knackley. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And if you want to get more on this story or the COP26 summit in Glasgow on October 31st, head to thenationalnews.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from Beyond the Headlines every week, then just hit subscribe in your favourite podcasting app. And if you can leave us a review while you're there, it would be a great help. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.